When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Welcome to tonight's classic episode, fellow conspiracy realist, the Sackler family. They did it. (laughs) Wait, wait. The Usher family? Exactly. (laughs) Shout out to Follow the House of Usher. I think, honestly, of all of the opioid epidemic kind of dramatizations, it it gets it the best, in my opinion. Kind of slaps. It's so good. You watched it finally, Matt? I've I've been watching it, yeah. I think it kicks ass. It's so good. But obviously, a really serious topic. We know that some of the pieces have fallen in the game of chess that is the U.S. government's prosecution of the Sackler family. Of course... The top, top, top members of that family have largely gone, you know, with slaps on wrists. Uh, And that's just unfortunately how these kinds of things go. But is it just them? That's right. No, of course. Yeah, there's a lot of nuance to this conversation and a lot of players and moving pieces in what actually created the opioid epidemic. Was it manufactured? You know, was it a conspiracy from the highest levels? And now in 2023, we can once again look back at this and remember the old adage, if the punishment for a crime is a fine, then the ultimate crime is just being poor. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined with our super producer, Paul Deckett. Most importantly, you are here. You are you. And that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. Today's episode deals with some issues that people may find uh, personally very disturbing. But we are here to shed a little bit of daylight into a murky world and a... A catastrophic occurrence that the U.S. and other 
countries are experiencing as we record the episode today. The subject, conspiracy realist, is drugs, drug use, drug abuse. And manufacturing. And manufacturing. Oh, that's the most important part, yes. Whether we are talking legal drugs, illegal, recreational, or purely medicinal, it's no secret. They're a huge business, a multi-billion dollar business. And each day across this planet of ours, millions of people depend on some form of drug to either what prolong their lives, to combat an ongoing incurable disease or condition, or to escape their problems, whatever those may be. In many cases, consumption of recreational drugs leads to injury or death. And depending on where you're from, there's a question for everyone. Uh, you may have grown up in a school system with an anti-drug program. I think we, the three of us mentioned it before on the show, DARE, here in the United States. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They ought to call it scare because I, I have this really distinct memory of being in elementary school and somebody giving this speech about when they were addicted to crack cocaine and talking about like, and I looked in the mirror one day and what I saw was a skeleton looking back at me. And in my third grade mind or whatever mm -hmm. grade mind, I thought he meant really like he saw a spooky skeleton <laughs> looking back at him in the mirror. And I was like, drugs are terrifying. Yeah, yeah. The old... Drug Abuse Resistance Education Program. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was rampant in my school. Dare to say no. Yes. Uh, dare to keep a kid off drugs. Dare yeah. to give a kid some hope. These are lyrics from the song they make you sing. And now it's just <laughs> been relegated to a trendy hipster um, thrift store shirt. Yeah. yeah. You it's can a, get your hands on one of those. You're living large. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's great to have them. I still have some of my old Dare shirts. And I would say I, I, I'm not against this idea. Mm -hmm. of having drug abuse resistant programs within mm -hmm. schools uh, but there's a, there's more to that story but we can get yeah. into that later yeah i'm i'm not against it either in theory it's i'm torn because i think in many cases some of those programs encouraged kids to experiment with drugs well they did it throughout my education and yours too. High school, too. high school too. And I remember in high school, somebody came in with this like suitcase yes. with replicas of all the drugs. And I was like, I want to try that. I want to try that. I want to try. Not really, but it's, it just, it has this like candy vibe to it where everything looks like a fun little thing you want to check out. It's a little weird. Yeah. And, and their success remains a matter of debate today. These sorts of programs, you know, how many of those, how many of those kids in high school would, Okay, the joke at a school I attended briefly was that you could tell all the kids who won the essay awards for D.A.R.E. because they were the biggest potheads by senior year. Wow. Every single one. And, uh, and maybe that's just that school, right? But today we're talking about a certain type of drug, one that you may have seen in that suitcase that uh, Noel had just mentioned if, when you were a child, one that previously launched numerous wars, one that has shaped uh, a lot of human civilization and experienced a sinister renaissance in the modern age. Today, we're talking about opium, specifically the opioid crisis. So here are the facts. First, what what is opium? What, what is opium? What is an opioid? How do they how do they measure up, right? Opium is this old substance that's been around for forever. It's a bitter, brownish, addictive narcotic drug. It consists of the uh, dried latex that's, that surrounds immature seed capsules in this, this happy little flower plant called an opium poppy. 
It's interesting to me because a lot of like marijuana legalization advocates, one of their arguments is, well, it grows from the ground, so it's got to be okay. Well, you know, so do poppies and so do the cocoa plants. So kind of kills that argument dead. Yeah, that's a good point. And also, of course, hashtag not all poppies. The, the point <laughs> you made, yeah, yeah. Matt, is that there's a specific type of poppy, the opium poppy, mm-hmm. that is used to create this substance. And yeah, it's been cultivated over mm-hmm. millennia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It dates way back. Um, and people loved it when they first discovered it because it produces a lower state of anxiety, an increased sense of well-being. You get drowsy. You get a little apathetic. It's tough to concentrate. And there are physical effects that you will hear people relay uh, as ways to encounter – ways to tell physically if someone is under the influence of opium or an opioid. Like a mm-hmm. lot of law enforcement spends time teaching their officials to – diagnose on the fly, which is relatively unscientific. I think it causes, causes constriction of the pupils, for example. They okay, get very yeah. tiny. Yeah, yeah. It, and there's also a, a euphoria associated with it mm-hmm. when taken at certain levels, mm-hmm. at doses. Yeah, that's why people chase the dragon, right? Mm-hmm. So they've been chasing this dragon, or people who use opium have been chasing it, for more than 5,000 years. The first references to growth and use date back to 3,400 BCE when Mesopotamians cultivated the opium poppy. Mesopotamia is more or less where we would picture Southwest Asia today. And Sumerians referred to it as Hulgil, the joy plant, which makes sense. Yep. Right? Yeah. They passed it on to the Assyrians. The Assyrians passed it on to the Egyptians. Greco-Romans, of course, were in the game. Uh, they also – they saw it as a both a painkiller and a um, – something to do with bowels. I can't remember if it was supposed to uh, stop you up or let you go. I think it stops you up. I think that's that another side effect of uh, opiate addiction is uh, chronic constipation. Mm. So they understood its medicinal use in that regard. But – of course. Why would the, you want to do that if you had like diarrhea or you, you, you had some kind of sickness yeah. that caused diarrhea, you to poop a lot? Di- you die from diarrhea. That's yeah. just back okay. in those okay. days. Okay. Dehydration. Good point. Yeah. Point taken. But, but uh, uh, regardless though, the, the primary appeal of this substance had has always been the way it makes you feel, right? Uh, poop or non-poop aside. <laughs> And the demand for this increased internationally. In early international trade, opium played an increasingly significant role. It, it's easy to grow. So people in the right climate would say, why do I have to buy this stuff from this shady, you know, the shady Roman or the shady Assyrian or whatever when I can just take a poppy and then grow my own and maybe, you know, take care of my supply and then sell it. So other countries began to grow this industry and they expanded its availability. The old rule of supply and demand still played a role here. So opium got cheaper too as more countries were growing it. And it quickly becomes a cash crop for a lot of places. Yes, absolutely. It remains so today. Places that maybe lacked other um, means of making money because of climate or Mm -hmm. location, rocky terrain. I think that's part of what makes opium so appealing to grow is because it's pretty adaptable or it Mm -hmm. it can grow in not the most ideal of circumstances. Mm -hmm. And also, it's easy to transport. You know, that's a big thing. So people began cultivating it 
all along the various trade routes through Eurasia, which are collectively known today as the Silk Road. So from the Mediterranean through Asia, finally to China, opium was growing. At this point, let's fast forward. That's a very high-level look. There's some excellent history podcasts about this growth of opium in ancient history. Uh, write to us if you want to hear them. Uh, we'll, we'll send them along. I, I, I can safely uh, say that these are great because we didn't do them. So it's not us bragging. <laughs> they're, they're objectively good. But one of the first and most historically significant conflicts or catastrophes caused directly by opium uh, was a series of conflicts known as the Opium Wars. Uh, the first one occurred in 1839 through 1942 between China and Britain. And the second Opium War occurred shortly after that in 1856 to 1860. Uh, the, this was sometimes called the Arrow War. And in that second one, Britain and France teamed up against China. In each case, the Western powers were victorious. And in each case, the Western powers were the bad guys. Yeah. Categorically. They're the ones that were – they were pushing the opium trade on – back onto China because China was trying to get away or stop the opium crisis that was occurring within their country. Mm. Now, is this when they would have had like these opium dens or opium clubs or whatever where people were just recreationally using it and it had become mm. a problem socially mm. in the country? Yeah. Uh, there and in India, adjacent mm -hmm. to China, what, what essentially happened was a trade imbalance. So there was a huge demand for certain Chinese-produced goods, silk, porcelain, jade, stuff like that. And the West wanted this stuff. Its consumers wanted it. By consumers at this point, uh, for those kinds of goods, I generally mean the really wealthy people the aristocrats and such. But the problem was there was no reciprocity. China didn't want anything that France and Britain were making. Yeah. But they did – but Britain particularly did control uh, these opium-producing regions and they knew that they could uh, engage a more successful trade if they, if they had something that the population of China wanted. Even more importantly – if they could create the demand for something, if they could make people want it. And can we just go back and just say they were controlling those regions through colonial means? Yes. Through capturing regions that were mm -hmm. resource rich or in this case, poppy rich. Right. Like the uh, East India Company and one mm -hmm. of the uh, most – one of the first globally successful corporations and definitely one of the most brutal. So the – Addiction rate amongst the Chinese population soared. They, they said, look, we're banning all opium. Don't bring it in. Britain started smuggling it through the uh, areas they controlled in India. And then uh, they decided to fight dirty. Ultimately, when they were victorious, what they got were trade concessions and some subjugation. But they didn't – they did not succeed in colonizing China. It was too big – and not as, not as vulnerable in a lot of ways that other nations were. They also had no interest in, uh, in the spread of Western religion. There you go. And I mean, that's a huge deal. You got to indoctrinate as you move forward and colonize. And we, we have made two videos on this subject 
uh, you, they're available on YouTube and our website. One of them is called Have Countries Really Fought Wars Over Opium? And the second one is Do the Opium Wars Continue Today? And I, they're highly informative videos and they pull on a lot of stuff that other our colleagues mm-hmm. have done on the opium wars in the past. Right, like stuff you missed in history class, stuff you should know. Mm-hmm. All hits, all classics. Hey, Matt, do those – just a question here. Do those videos still hold up? Would you say they're still relevant in 2018? Yeah, definitely. Well, and these are historical accounts of the opium wars. Mm. So the first one is at least. And the second one really has to do with kind of what we're talking about today. Ah, I see. Yeah. And speaking of today, what is the legal status of opium, right? This yes. thing that launched so many wars, uh, like an evil Helen of Troy. Uh, <laughs> Today, opium is considered illegal in most countries, including, oddly enough, the countries where tons and tons, literal tons of it are produced each year, such as Afghanistan. It's still illegal there. And again, you're talking about a substance that can fund anything else in the country because – there is so much money to be made and not a lot of other resources to be produced. Yeah, yeah. That's – I mean that is – a crucial point here, I think. So in the U.S., most opiates and synthetic opioids are considered Schedule II narcotics by the DEA, Drug Enforcement Administration. And because of this, they have to be prescribed by a physician. They are highly regulated. Currently, of all the opiates, opiate or opioid being something derived from actual opium, of all of those things, heroin is the only one that is Schedule I, which means the U.S. government, Uncle Sam, considers it, that it has a high potential for abuse with little, relatively little real medicinal value. Like to the U.S., this is just a drug that does damage. Just when it's heroin and it's so fascinating. Which is interesting. Just take a half a step and then you've got all the other drugs we're going to be talking mm-hmm. about today. <laughs> and of the estimated global opium production – Almost half of it is legally produced for processing into these medicines that you just mentioned, Matt. Any country can do this. Any country in the world can apply to the UN. They've got a thing called the Commission on Narcotic Drugs to cultivate, produce, and trade opium legally uh, because of this convention signed in 1961, the UN Single Convention on Narcotics Drugs. And they'll have – some supervision from uh, another UN body. But as of 2001, there were 18 countries that do this legally, including countries you might expect uh, like Turkey or India who had historically produced opium. I'm not doing a stereotype just based on historical precedent. But then other countries like Australia and the United Kingdom also fall under this. So they're also producing opium. I just want to be clear about that. So, so that's opium, but we're we're going toward opioids. What what exactly is an opioid? Yeah, opioids is kind of like this overarching umbrella term, but it's used to describe um, substances that tick at least three of the opium receptors in the brain that interact with them. Uh, it's a class of drug that includes illegal, the illegal narcotic heroin, but it also includes synthetic opioids like fentanyl and and other pain medications that can be obtained legally with a prescription like oxycodone. We've got some brand names here, which is oxycontin, hydrocodone or Vicodin, codeine, morphine, and tons more. 
So, okay, a little more on the way the U.S. and the DEA schedules drugs. There's a system in place. Opioids vary from Schedule 1. We talked about earlier heroin being the only one that is considered that, meaning it has no medicinal use whatsoever and high potential for abuse. Um, and it goes to Schedule 5. And depending on – it's all depending on this perceived medical usefulness, uh, abuse potential, safety Drug dependence profile, which sounds like a very high-level way of saying addictability. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 which is different from abuse potential. Abuse potential is how likely would someone go overboard to chase a particular effect of the drug. For funsies. And dependency is how likely would somebody have to be normal with it. And dependency and the argument or discussion surrounding that is a huge part of Mm -hmm. today's story, which we'll get more into Mm -hmm. in a bit. Um. And heroin remains completely illegal to distribute, mm-hmm. purchase, or use outside of any kind of medical research where I don't know what that would look like. Medical research in this sense would mean that a board of like clinical researchers or groups of doctors often through a university or government-sponsored treatment center will be able to access uh, opium or create heroin from it. Uh, for the purpose of creating maybe a new opioid, for the purpose of learning more about how it, heroin itself affects users. And it's kind of similar know. to the, like uh, testing uh, some of the hallucinogens right now sure. to see how they, they affect people with either post-traumatic stress disorder or something similar like to that. Like MDMA, right? Yes. Yes, and speaking of users, we would say one of the most important parts of this story, let's learn a little bit more about usage statistics for opium and opioids after a word from our sponsors. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a has got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. 
but you better hurry because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Okay, everyone, this is the point where we dive into some numbers, which are fascinating and damning, I would say. Yeah, and, and important. And please try do your best not to gloss over and soak these in. There are a lot of numbers in this this section we're coming mm-hmm. on to, but they are highly important. So we dug up some relatively recent numbers, uh, just going back a few years. The International Narcotics Control Board reported that in 2015, 99.7% of the world's hydrocodone, known by its brand name Vicodin, was consumed in the U.S. alone. 0.3% of the world's Vicodin is consumed outside of the U.S. That's insane. Do you think that has anything to do with our ability within this country to promote drugs through advertising? Yeah. That's true. Yeah, we've mentioned it before. We should mention it again. Will you break that down for anyone who didn't hear this in earlier episodes and isn't from the States? In a lot of places outside of our grand little experiment here, Mm -hmm. uh, you're not allowed, it is illegal to market prescription drugs to people, Mm -hmm. to try and sell it as a product to Mm -hmm. purchase or to use. Wait, so you're not allowed to have a happy housewife dancing blissfully across the playground to her child waiting on the swing set? Yes, no matter how many precautions you put at the end of your ad, you cannot show it in many places. With neon green grass and perfectly azure blue skies? And very, very vague claims. (laughs) What even is this? It's only allowed in New Zealand and the U.S. That is bonkers. And I was even going to bring up, like, what's that conversation like where you decide, we're going to call it Vicodin? Is there any etymology in the names of these drugs ever at all? I've always wondered this. Case by case. Yeah. It's uh, it's similar to – so because this is private industry, there's – the the marketing decision really comes down to a conversation between the CEOs, the PR firms, and maybe the people who actually made the drug. You don't think the FDA would have any any weigh-in potential in this? Probably not because these groups present it. To the FDA, right? Yeah, and the FDA often is a series. uh, They they will have some guidelines about this, but the FDA in theory on paper and the FDA in practice are two very, very different organizations, unfortunately, for most residents of this country. But yeah, it's it's true. It's a case-by-case thing. So they'll have – there will be some policy conventions. There's not a law, but there will be policy conventions such as you can't name this – uh, cancer cure. Happy fun yeah. fun pills. Right, right, yeah. right. Uh, but I would argue that things like Lyrica are pushing the line on that. Yeah. That sounds nice. Yeah, that sounds, right? wow, just saying it out loud makes mm-hmm. me have a warm, fuzzy feeling. Right. So it's, it, it does go down to marketing. If you were listening to this and you are, uh, you have participated in the naming of a drug, we would love to hear your process. Absolutely. Yeah, Tylenol, get at us. <laughs> right? Uh, Excedrin's a good one because mm-hmm. c- you got the root of Excel in there. That's an excellent. Uh, so throughout 2016, regardless of what the names for these drugs were, there were more than 63,600 overdose deaths in the U.S. Of those 63,600, 42,249 involved an opioid. That's 66%. That's over 66%. And that, if we want to math it out a little bit, that equates to an average of 115 overdose deaths just from opioids 
every single day in 2016. Do we have a statistic as to whether they were street opioids or prescription opioids? I would would love to see a breakdown of that. Probably hard to tell. Well, yeah, because they gather that information when they assess cause of death. And sometimes it might be difficult to figure out how that got in their system. So I bet, I bet you if we drill down enough, we can, we can find something there or we can find a good guess. But at that, at that statistic is just some sort of opioid, but still it's, they're dead. But given the prescription rate Mm -hmm. and the numbers, it sure feels like a big chunk of those are probably legally obtained and prescribed or sold by someone who legally obtained and prescribed them to someone who maybe shouldn't have had them. From what are they called? Pill mills? Pill mills. Considering those numbers we said at the top of the show about how many people in this country rely on prescription Mm -hmm. medication. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we do have stats on the number of opioid prescriptions. In 1992, this is troubling. It goes to your question about how we can ascertain which particular type of opioid Mm -hmm. these people were trying, like street or prescription. In 1992, there were 112 million prescriptions written for some sort of opioid. By 2012, that had peaked to 282 million. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, per year, not per day. Well over doubled. Yeah, well over doubled. The good news is it began to decline after that, but not by that much. 200-something million is the new normal now. In 2016, the number had fallen to 236 million. So it's still more than doubled. My gosh. Yeah, and surely it's not a product of some kind of massive population boom. Right. You know, we definitely obviously know that our population is growing, but certainly not by that kind of number. And Noel, you're asking about a a number that you can point to to how many prescription deaths there have been. Mm -hmm. So from 1999 up until 2015, there are roughly an estimated 183,000 deaths from prescription overdoses, Mm -hmm. opiate overdoses. Which means that's what? An average of 91 overdose deaths per day? Since 99. Mm -hmm. And as a result, to put this in perspective, uh, this means – we have we have a lot of folks who listen to this show uh, while they're driving. Yeah. So this might be good news for you. Uh, you're more likely to die of an opioid overdose than a car crash. Yeah. So you're you're safer in your car at least. Man, you know, driving in and work today, four cars ahead of me. Some dude was trying to get off at the 14th Street exit coming Mm -hmm. south on 85. This is for all you Atlanta listeners. Um, And as he's trying to get over, he's trying to do it, you know, right at the end, right before there's the guardrail and everything. Oh, one of those. Mm -hmm. And he couldn't make it. So he, like, swung his car back to the left, made another car get out of the way of him, and ran into a truck just a couple of cars Mm -hmm. ahead of me. And um, So even in Atlanta traffic, you're safer in your car (laughs) than you are taking prescription opiates. Yes, in a crazy place like this. Statistically anyway. speaking, at least, right? Yeah. But yeah, that's that's a sobering point. And as of 2018, more than 2 million American residents have become either dependent on or have abused prescription pain pills and street drugs. So luckily, at least, that's the total for the illegal trade as well as the quote-unquote, legal one. And we have to ask ourselves, at what point does this become an epidemic? Most would argue that having this many people addicted to some derivative of opium or a similar narcotic means we're already in a crisis. Yeah. 
But but if that doesn't tip the scale, if two million is not enough, then what does move the needle? More deaths? A higher rate of addiction? Is it a crisis when it's five million people? Is it not a crisis until it's ten million? Yeah, who decides that? <laughs> well, I think recently uh, the the current president did uh, yeah. declare that there was a crisis. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, there there have been cries to call it a crisis for a long time, and. The news, the media has been calling it a crisis for years and years. Mm-hmm. And um, But didn't he stop just short of there being really any real action behind it? Like I think declaring a state of emergency or something mm-hmm. allows some kind of federal money to kick in to help mitigate a problem. And I think his declaration stopped just short of anything real happening. It was more of a symbolic gesture than, than anything. Well, yeah, it's yeah. a question of do we use tax money to actually combat it or do we mm-hmm. say, yes, it's a crisis and let's get more private institutions working on it. And right now that fight is going state by state. And it leads us to another question. How did this all happen? What caused this? It's sort of like that uh, that trope in film and television where you get to a freeze frame and someone – you hear a voiceover say, you're probably wondering how I got here. That's our question. What brought us here? Here's where it gets crazy. According to numerous critics, policy researchers, government officials, medical experts and more, the cause of the current opioid epidemic – isn't solely the fault of, say, like some illegal drug cartel over the border or in the Golden Triangle somewhere. It's not street-level dealers like Pookie and The Wire. Instead, they argue, the blame for the present crisis falls squarely at the feet of the pharmaceutical industry, the lobbyists it employs, and the government officials with whom these lobbyists interact. I mean, if we take a closer look, nearly 75% of people who were receiving treatment for heroin addiction didn't just start doing heroin. They didn't wake up one day and say, you know what, carpe diem. They began their addiction by being prescribed opioid painkillers. Yeah. Typically for a painkilling thing, right? And these these are often people who don't have a history of drug abuse. Yeah, and many times it has to do with being prescribed a certain amount of opioids, so over a threshold of days. Mm. I think the safe threshold is like seven or something around that. And many many of these begin when you get like two weeks, three weeks worth of prescription mm. painkillers. Yeah, and the the weird thing is that this – statistic that 75 – I think the number may have increased to 80 percent now that the vast majority of people who are in treatment for heroin addiction in the U.S. started heroin after they could no longer get legal opioid prescriptions. This this is absolutely a well-known fact but it still has yet to stop the rise in opioid prescriptions for pain relief that over the past 10 years, the number of prescriptions handed out has risen by 300 percent. Well, get this. There's an article from the Washington Post from 2015, so not incredibly up to date. But still, uh, the headline is why a bag of heroin costs less than a pack of cigarettes. And it has a map for the entire country showing about how much a bag of heroin costs. And by bag, we're saying that's that's about a dose. Maybe it's two doses. I'm not sure. Point being – it's between 7 and $10 for 
a an amount of heroin that could potentially kill you and would be enough to completely put you put your butt mm. butt in the dirt. You know what I mean? But how much does that? How much does a heavy heroin user use per day? Surely more than one or two doses. Absolutely. Absolutely. And here's the thing, too. I just looked up OxyContin pill price, um, and it says when legally sold, a 10-milligram tab of OxyContin is about a buck twenty-five, and an 80-milligram tablet will cost $6. When illegally sold on the street, it can cost between $10 and $80 for one pill, depending on the dose. So it's usually about a dollar a milligram. So an 80-milligram OxyContin is about $80. And a tab is just a pill. A pill. Okay. So you can see maybe if you can't get it legally prescribed and you're relying on those pill mills or buying it illegally from someone who does have the prescription, which is certainly how a lot of this stuff gets into circulation, you could see the the attraction of buying those $7 bags of heroin Mm -hmm. if you're really addicted to that particular, you know, buzz. Yeah. And then people would say, well, I'm not. I'm doing this as a stopgap, right? And I'm not going to shoot it up. I'm not going to take it intravenously. I'm not going to insulfate or whatever. I'm just going to maybe smoke it. Or snort it. Yeah. Yeah, right. Maybe get to snorting it, but never shooting it. So one of the big uh, – there's some demographics that fall into this too that we would be remiss if we didn't mention. We'll get to them by the end of the episode. But for now, we can say that opiate manufacturers – know how much money is at stake. They've spent more than $880 million over the past 10 years just to – not to make new drugs, but just to keep control over the making and distribution of these substances. Yeah, and, we, we almost yeah. said products, but it just makes you want to vomit a little bit. <laughs> right. It's true. And this money, where did this massive amount of cash uh, – come from? Where do we get this number? It comes from their lobbying and campaign contributions. And this has been used in large settlements with anyone looking to challenge what what is commonly called big pharma. I know when you hear that phrase, it makes it easy to dismiss this as uh, some Looney Tunes conspiracy theory, but there is a huge industry. It's real. Call yeah. it big pharma. Call it whatever you want. It's not going to stop them. Yeah, a small group of very profitable companies. Yeah, and very powerful. And they have, you know, a lot of money for lobbyists to wield legislative influence and make sure that that pill money keeps on flowing. Yeah, in the 1990s, pharmaceutical companies reassured the medical community, doctors, researchers, hospitals, medical institutions, that patients would not become addicted to prescription opioid pain relievers. They said this is different from heroin this is, or morphine, right, or opium. This is FDA approved. This – we have specifically made this to uh, mitigate or ameliorate some of those concerns about the possibility of addiction. And then healthcare providers began to prescribe them at the, – these drugs rather – at greater rates. And when they say they persuaded them and reassured them – that that's where money comes into play. It's a little yeah. bit of a euphemistic thing. Well, you know, or mouse pads. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I think we just have to say right here at the top that there are a lot of people everywhere on this planet that are in constant pain that just kind of live 
in in some kind of pain yes, true. that exists and subsists. And the invention of these products, mm-hmm. what is and was kind of this amazing miracle thing for people who are just constantly in pain. You mean I can take a pill and I don't hurt always? Right. It's not a cure, but it's a um, it's it's not it lessens the curse. Yeah. Of chronic incurable pain. It almost the the idea of it at least gives mm. the lives back to people who are taking it, right? Uh, yeah, that's powerful. So you can see you can kind of see here where uh, a lot of it is mental mm-hmm. from the manufacturers to the end user mm-hmm. of I'm I'm doing something good or this is helping me. This is giving me my life back. Yeah. Um just want to throw that in that's, there. Before I mean, that's we... a brilliant point. In the 1990s, everyone wanted to believe these statements. Yes. By the pharmaceutical companies. And perhaps, you know what? You know what, man? Perhaps they believed it too. Yeah. Let's just admit, maybe they did. Either way, whether they were purposefully being deceptive or whether they honestly just somehow didn't do even the most cursory research on this stuff. Whatever happened, uh, it led to the misuse of these medications and eventually became clear that they were highly addictive. And anyone who said otherwise was either lying or cartoonishly wrong. And first, it is valid for defenders of these companies to say you cannot blame drug companies for legally selling something the FDA approved. But – the problem with that is pharmaceutical companies didn't just sell these opioids. They also brutally suppressed legislation that would have limited addiction among patients, including, for instance, a bill in Tennessee that was designed to reduce the number of newborns who were born addicted to opiates. For some reason, the drug companies uh, heavily lobbied to kill that bill and successfully. In New Mexico, there was another proposed bill that was supposed to limit the initial prescription of opioids for acute pain, to your pa- point, Matt, mm-hmm. to seven days, to a week. And that would make addiction less likely and produce fewer leftover pills, which is such a good idea. A big problem. But that legislation got killed as well. And let's be even more fair here. They didn't just kill certain bills or proposals. We don't want to make it sound like that. They were instrumental, in fact, this might surprise some people, in supporting several key pieces of legislation related to opioids. They were huge fans of a bill in Maine that required insurers to cover the company's abuse deterrent painkillers. Do you like that phrase? Abuse, abuse deterrent, deterrent, right? Wait, what are what are these abuse deterrent painkillers? Is this a special version? <laughs> well, the <Does> I- <laughs> the idea is that they aren't they're you're less likely to get addicted. Again, that's how they were is sold. Things like time release kind of, like stuff like that? Because I know that like early on you would always read that with OxyContin, for example, you could crush them up and, and snort them like we were talking about. And we, we, we found out that the, doc, that the uh, companies knew that that was being done, that there was that kind of abuse. But then later there were versions of them that you could not do that with. They had some special coding mm-hmm. that you could not break or it would fundamentally change the the nature of the drug and it, it prevented you from doing it. Is it the kind of stuff you're talking about? I yeah, think? That, those those would be a couple of examples. And I don't know if there's anything that's industry-wide with that because, again, these are all private companies, but it would be stuff like time release, mm-hmm. for instance, or 
something. Um, that coding you mentioned is fascinating. I would want to read more about that. But I'm glad you're bringing up specific examples because we'll get to some specific examples of instances wherein these pharmaceutical companies became, let's say, controversial. Sure. After a word from our sponsors. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. All right, 2017. Uh, okay, a- I'm there. Uh, let's see what's going on. Um, it's 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 about a year ago. Oh, oh, oh you're right. Okay, <laughs> we're much much the same. What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> First, the, the, what what season of Game of Thrones are we on at that point? Right, right. Uh, is it? We're still wrapping up the last one, right? I think so. Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, the the four of us are all still devastatingly handsome, mm-hmm. uh, re- reasonably witty. Ben, you devil. <laughs> well, I'm a sly one, right? <laughs> uh, and there's also a senator named Claire McCaskill, a Democrat out of Missouri, who releases a report about an Arizona-based drug maker named INSYS. I-N-S-Y-S. Yes. Uh, they make an opioid called Subsys. Ah. S-U-B-S-Y-S. Uh, it contains fentanyl. And in this senator's report, again, this is 2017, there are a ton of internal documents from the company, from INSYS itself, describing how it works to get over these barriers called prior authorizations. Subsys, the drug, is meant for one thing and one thing alone – for cancer-related pain. If you want to get it for anything else, you have to get prior authorization from your doctor. So it turns out, internally, 
Insys had a whole department within the company just for doing this, just for getting these prior authorizations. And it was not above board. No, no, no. The employees in this department would call uh, pharmacy benefit managers who are in charge of these prior authorizations. you got to love the terms. Yeah. And they would pretend they were with a doctor's office to get the sign-off for uh, subsists to be prescribed to a patient who did not have cancer. Wow. So my question is, is that not fraud? I think it is. I would argue that it was. It seems like the definition of fraud. It's illegal for us to call a pharmacy and pretend to be a doctor's office. Yeah. Mm. All right. Is it? All right. I'm pretty sure. (laughs) We see you in, sis. And then there's there's another example, which is one that I think really stood out to all of us. This company is one of the most well-known cases of – if we're going to be alliterative, pharmaceutical perfidy. Uh, oh, wait, word of the day. Perfidy. <laughs> ah! What does it mean? Uh, it's deceitful, untrustworthy, treacherous, duplicitous. Perfidy, your word of the day. <laughs> so, okay. So, <laughs> thank you, Matt. Uh, so Purdue Pharma is a company that aggressively marketed Oxycontin. And they made it. They made it. And that's the brand name for – is it hydrocodone or is that Vicodin? I think it's, it's oxycodone, isn't it? Oxycodone. I okay. think. Yes, you are, you are correct. Thank you. Um, Oxycontin, marketed by Purdue, uh, was claimed to be one of those things that was going to be less addictive, right, than heroin and have all – same great benefits, same great taste, far fewer calories, yeah. very American in the marketing, right? But – They also claimed, the company claimed, that they were unaware of the growing abuse of Mm -hmm. OxyContin, which I think is also called, in some some parts of Appalachia at least, is called hillbilly heroin. It is. Right. And and I spoiled a little bit of of this earlier, but let's get into some details here. So it turns out that a copy of a confidential Justice Department report – surfaced and it shows that federal prosecutors investigating Purdue found that Purdue knew about quote significant abuse of this drug in particular in the first few years after they introduced it in 1996 and then they covered it up they were aware that people would do insane things uh, to satisfy oxycontin they saw that pills were being sold illegally and then crushed and snorted or cut with other stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, and that they would be stolen from pharmacies, sometimes in violent robberies. Yeah, like drugstore cowboy style, if you've ever seen that uh, Gus Van Zandt movie. Mm -hmm. And then they would – some doctors were being charged with just selling prescriptions, just come into my pill mill where the address changes every few years. Mm -hmm. Give me 50 bucks. Tell me what you want. It's despicable. And guess what they did? They went on ahead, they pushed forward, and they said, no, 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 Oxycontin, guys, this is less prone to addiction than other prescription opioids. It's the better choice for you and your family. Oh, <laughs> and then it went, family. Yeah, exactly. And today, Purdue maintains that it had absolutely no knowledge of the abuse potential until 2000. Again, despite internal memos from the higher-ups multiple memos and conversations that clearly contradict this. Can we go ahead and just talk about the Sackler family? Yeah, lay it on me. Just so, just really fast. So the Sackler family, ultimately, they're the owners of Purdue, 
Yeah. There's there are about 20 individuals that share the wealth of this one family that owns Purdue and it's it's fascinating. I think they have a net income or a net family worth of around 13 billion dollars right now. Um at least that's according to Forbes. 13 billion dollars. <laughs> The yeah, no. worth it, worth it, oh, as you would say, Ben. I love that. Thanks. But yes, they uh, they bought this this drug manufacturer <laughs> a long time ago in 1952, the <laughs> one that was just kind of around. This fledgling, young, upstart <laughs> drug manufacturing. Post-World War II. Emporium. Yes, well, there well, and they were making things, uh, again, according to Forbes, like uh, earwax remover and laxatives. Tonics, no doubt. Yeah, <laughs> you know, thing, well, I mean, it's 1952. They're making they're making prescription drugs and, and stuff like that, yeah, too, I'm stuff assuming. stuff with cocaine in it, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, mother's little helper, right? <laughs> but, yeah. But apparently they didn't have really much going on uh, as, you know, a way of bringing money into the company until they made this drug, Oxycontin. Really? And in 1995, that's when they officially were making it mm. or, like, made it. And from that point on, that was the thing. I mean – it's literally the cash cow or the heroin that mm. they came upon. More like oxy ka-ching. I no. mean. There we go. Yeah. Yes. Yes, worth it. <laughs> yeah. But they're the number 19 most wealthy family uh, in the world right now. Insane. And they made that money. They made the bulk of it off of this particular product. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Number 19 in the uh, in America. Oh, okay. Not in the world. There we go. I, that, you know, it's still uh Kudos to you, uh, Sacklers. If you want to dig a little deeper into that, there's an article in the New Yorker with a fabulous headline. It's the family that built an empire of pain. The Sackler dynasty's ruthless marketing of painkillers has generated billions of dollars and millions of addicts. That's Woo. a great title and surprisingly accurate. Let's look at those distribution statistics. Between 2007 and 2016, the most widely prescribed opioid was actually – it wasn't oxycodone. Not this time. No, it's hydrocodone, Vicodin, uh, which you might remember from uh, some of Eminem's earlier lyrics. Yeah. And, you know, movies from the, the 80s. Yes. Or, yeah. you know – just any of your relatives or friends who have been prescribed it. Yeah. In 2016, 6.2 billion hydrocodone pills were distributed across this nation. 6.2 billion. Oxycodone's not even the, uh, or Oxycontin rather, is not even the second most prevalent. The no? second most prevalent is another version of Oxycodone, uh, Percocet. Uh, that, uh, that topped out at 5 billion uh, tablets or pills distributed in the U.S. Oh my God! And people have been taking notice. You know, not just not just us, not just uh, a a couple of reporters here and there, but the government too. In 2006, after a four year investigation, the Justice Department and the prosecutors recommended that three top executives at Purdue be indicted on felony charges, including conspiracy to defraud the United States. <laughs> uh, and this would have resulted in prison time if these people had been convicted. This, okay, so yeah. that, it just go ahead. That reminds me of maybe the, the market crash in 2007, 2008. Yeah. Where all the guys in charge were supposed to get indicted and, and charged and they'd be in trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad it reminds you of this. So I'm uh, hopefully just just like that situation, all those guys went to prison, right? Oh, boy. Yeah, okay. So what had happened was, 
officials in the George W. H. Bush administration did not support this prosecutorial move. Oh. Instead, they settled the case in 2007. And we have a quote uh, from a New York Times article on, on this debacle, some would call it. Purdue Pharma pleaded guilty to a felony charge of misbranding and Oxycontin while marketing the drug by misrepresenting, among other things, its risk of addiction and potential to be abused. So there were three executives, the company's chief executive, Michael Friedman, its top medical officer, Dr. Paul D. Goldenheim, and Mr. Udell, uh, a gentleman who died in 2013. All of these guys pleaded guilty to misdemeanor misbranding. Yeah. And it solely held them liable as Purdue's... Uh, Purdue Pharma's responsible executives and did not accuse them of any wrongdoing. And the company had to pay, oh, along with the executives, paid $634.5 million in fines. And although they did not go to jail, they were required to perform, get this, community service. Uh, no no member, by, by the way, the prosecutor's did not accuse any Sackler family members of wrongdoing. And let's just remember that, you know, 634 mil seems like a, a, a ton of cash, but this family is worth upwards of 13 bill. Well, and at the time, uh, they were they were raking in about $1.6 billion mm. uh, a year in, yeah. with their pharma industry. So it's like with banking regulations, is that just the cost of doing business at this point? Yeah. I mean, it's a huge cost. It's like over one third of your, your cost of doing business, but still. But and those payments are negotiable too. It's essentially a layaway payment plan or they can they can appeal that and see what well, they did make a settlement. Yes. That's the problem. So they are on the hook somehow to pay it. But once that stuff gets out of the news, you would be surprised how amenable both parties can be behind the scenes. And yet, Ben, if I get a parking ticket, <laughs> I got to pay that thing in full. Yeah. Or, or, or any kind of uh, moving violation or misdemeanor, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Like, I, you know, I've been to court only for parking and traffic stuff. But you have to pay it before you leave unless you give some kind of crazy mitigating uh, circumstances. Mm-hmm. You know, your, your local government appreciates your business. Well, yeah, that's how it feels. But it's so crazy to me thinking about the backroom scenarios that would go into scheduling payments for a, a, an astronomical amount like this when the company can totally afford it. I don't know. It's just uh, it just rubs me the wrong way. <laughs> so, Sacklers! <laughs> and there's a pretty interesting anecdote uh, that I, th- I think you found, Noel, about protest with Purdue and the Sacklers. Yeah, I've, I think we've talked about this on another episode previously, but I think this is a really nice way to tie this thing up. Um, earlier this year, a, an art gallery owner in Connecticut got arrested after he placed an enormous sculpture of a heroin spoon. Um, you might have oh. seen this in movies. It's where you take a spoon and you bend it backwards on top of itself so that you can take the powdered heroin, you place it in the spoon, and you, you light a match or a, a lighter or a candle, and it boils it up. Or burn, you put water in it and it becomes an injectable substance as opposed to a powder. And this notion of being addicted, it's kind of an icon of addiction to heroin very specifically. So this gallery owner um, placed an enormous sculpture of one of these heroin spoons right outside in the walkway of the home office of Purdue Pharma in Stamford, Connecticut. And, wow. Yeah, the, the owner of the gallery was named Fernando Luis Alvarez, and he collaborated with a Boston-based artist named Dominique Esposito to commission this piece. 
And he has a great quote here, um, Ben, if, if you yeah. wouldn't mind. Right. He told Time magazine, the Justice Department in the country has to start putting some of these people behind bars because they go on and make a lot of money and then they pay a fine and so be it. It's just not the way it should be. And he got charged by the police, I think. Yeah, for obstruction of free passage. Oh, yeah, because it did block the entrance a little bit. It wasn't even in traffic. It was a footpath. Uh, And also for interfering with the police after he refused to remove the sculpture. Um, And it sounds like he's going to be charged, you know, whatever goes along with those misdemeanor violations and also the cost of removing it. Because it looks like it was like – bolted down to the concrete. So he's probably going to have to pay some fees to patch up the sidewalk where he put it in. And removal of this thing would be no joke because it's it's about 10 and a half feet long. And they had to, you know, the the city government, I guess, or law enforcement had to remove it and also store it. So, you know, this guy's going to get pretty hefty fine for that, whatever ah, they assess. Ah, however, we are a pretty resourceful team conspiracy realist. If you're listening to this, you happen to be in the area and you practice law, why not accept his payment, that gigantic sculpture, <laughs> get the guy out of out of court, and then plant it back. I'd love oh, to see a sequel. Uh, there's, we're going a little bit long on today's episode uh, because first, because this is incredibly important mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter what your personal beliefs are, the numbers are real and they have no opinion. There's something else we wanted to mention that we were talking about with our super producer, Paul, who brought up a great point. This is obviously, not only is it not the first opium crisis in the world, it's not the first drug crisis in the U.S. In the 80s, there was the crack cocaine epidemic, and the government handled it in a very different way. Yeah. They didn't uh, They didn't say let's sort of soft foot around on a federal level holding pharmaceutical companies responsible, right? Because all, all the powerful legislation for this stuff, we should say, is coming state by state. Uh, and we can tell you a little bit more about that later. But what they did instead in the war on drugs was add things like mandatory sentencing, add things like three strike laws for stuff uh, – relatively innocuous like possession, not even with intent to distribute. For the end user. For the end user, not the supplier. Someone who is addicted to uh, smoking crack is probably not also pressuring lobbyists, right, to to, uh, let them market cocaine more effectively. So one of the huge differences here – Uh, that you can also see in various news articles such as NPR's Why is the Opioid Epidemic Overwhelmingly White? Some some of the uh, really, I would say, revelatory media research in this thing is tracing it to the demographic of the end user, right? Because crack cocaine's user base was portrayed as predominantly uh, people of color. And the opioid epidemic is portrayed predominantly as white people. It's a really, I mean, it's an unfortunate point. And it just see, you can see how it's shaped the entire, both of the entire processes. One thing we do have to point out here is that the crack cocaine epidemic is an illegal substance solely peddled illegally, right? There's no, there's no legal prescription version of cocaine or crack cocaine. No. Um, and in this case... I think it's kind of the the same point you're making, Ben. In this case, you've got somehow the same illegal substance changed just enough that it can become a product that can be sold legally. Yeah. 
I think the, I think the takeaway here is, is, the, is the money. Yeah. Well, there's also the, there's also an interesting thing in this article that that is profoundly disturbing, and it goes back into stereotypes medical professionals have toward oh. patients based on what they perceive the the patient's identity to be. Uh, there's a drug abuse expert in this interview on NPR named Dr. Andrew Kolodny. Apologies if I'm mispronouncing your name, doctor. And Kolodny notes that one thing he's seen is that doctors tend to prescribe is a quote here, doctors tend to prescribe narcotics more cautiously to their non-white patients because it seems the doctors themselves have stereotypes about addiction. So really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that that sort of racially based or motivated attitude on the part of the medical professional may be playing a role too. Jeez. There's an interesting analog or with something that's going on in the news right now. Matt, you mentioned that the difference between – or one of the differences in the way that the government handled it is the fact that heroin and opiates, there's a legal version of it that you can be prescribed. No analog exists for crack cocaine or, or mm-hmm. cocaine, what, what have you. Since they took it out of Coca-Cola. Since they took it out of Coca-Cola and you know mommy's <laughs> little helpers or whatever, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I've talked about this before and it's, it's interesting because it, it really is an ongoing story. There is um, what's, what's kind of billed as an herbal supplement called Kratom. It's a, it's a, uh, a ground up um, – leaf from a tree that's indigenous to like Malaysia or, or some somewhere Thailand, Thailand. Yeah. that's that's correct and it has been on the DEA's watch list for a long time now because it has supposedly analog analogous um, sensations and effects to opioids and a lot of people take it uh, and there's a whole you know it's it's, it's a billion dollar industry and there's a, like a, an organization that is like the advocate for this substance um, and people t- say how they take it to get off of prescription painkillers or to treat some of the things that prescription painkillers would be, you know, prescribed for Mm -hmm. and what have you. And then, of course, there is also a um, – people take it for anxiety, what have you, but then there's also potential for abuse. But the latest is that the DEA is finally really cracking down on it and it looks like they may make it federally illegal um, sooner rather than later. You mean schedule it. Schedule it. Make it schedule one. Mm -hmm. Wow. wow. And you know how many deaths so have been attributed to this substance? Roughly zero? 30. 30. 30. Oh, 30 okay. And I don't know the details about sure. that, but how many deaths did we say were attributed to prescription painkillers? Thousands. So why is the attitude so different? Why is this substance on the chopping block and yet the uh, the others that we have massive amounts of data that show it is in fact deadly mm. are not? I think it comes down to big pharma is pissed that this legal mm. substance that you can buy in head shops and online or what have you is potentially taking away taking money out of their pocket. Yeah. I I want to I want I think that's a fantastic point. I want to go back though and make sure we don't miss the point with what this doctor was saying about the way we handle these epidemics and I think they tie in because in uh, the the doctor Kaladin was saying that in this epidemic where we do see these legal analogs, uh, he's saying we're hearing from policymakers, even conservative politicians, when they talk about the crisis, they begin by saying we cannot arrest our way out of this. Mm. We can see that people who are addicted can access effective treatment. We did not hear that during the crack cocaine epidemic. It's good that we're hearing it now, but it's too bad we didn't hear it then. And if Kratom is a possible way to help people in need, then it seems – 
just objectively, it seems pretty counterintuitive to remove that from the conversation. Absolutely. I didn't mean to derail the the racial uh, tones to this uh, comparison. I think that is absolutely accurate. I think this is almost – it just really goes to show that there – is not only that bias in place in this discussion, but also that whole lining of the pockets this, you know, element that's I in place I think they're as hand well. in hand, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, and, here's the thing. Does, yeah. does Kratom then – do you get Kratom clinics, like methadone clinics? Well, and sure, then now like people Canada. are addicted to Kratom. No, you said there's potential for abuse, right? The, well, that's, here's what the DEA has to say about this. One of their big beefs is that it's being supposedly marketed for those things that I mentioned earlier, yeah. withdrawal from opiates, mm-hmm. um, treating things that would require a more a professional medical opinion, et cetera. Supposedly, they say it's being marketed that way. So it says, quote, the FDA knows people are using Kratom to treat conditions like pain, anxiety, and depression, which are serious medical conditions that require proper diagnosis and oversight from a licensed healthcare provider. We also know that the substance is being actively marketed and distributed for these purposes. Importantly, evidence shows that Kratom has similar effects to narcotics like opioids and carry similar risks of abuse, addiction, and in some cases, death. But then you have people that use it and talk about it very openly that are part of these organizations that say it's just not the same, that they hmm. were able to use it because it had a similar effect to narcotics, but that they it, it literally allowed them to kind of integrate back into society in a way that they just weren't able to do with the narcotics that they were on, the heavy doses of narcotics. So like MDA, MDMA and uh, PTSD. Yeah. Right? What we need is a prescription version that we can sell for mm-hmm. $80 a tablet. Right. <laughs> and then it's good to go. No cures, <laughs> only treatments. Yeah. Right? You know, I, I know we're wrapping up. We're going way too long. Sure. You, we didn't even really get into the fentanyl thing that's happening right now as part of the crisis, like the reason why so many people right. are dying right now today while we're recording this because the heroin supply that is illegal that people are getting rather than the prescription drugs mm. is laced with this thing that's deadly in very, very, very small doses. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it just it's just a fact. Uh, fentanyl is a drug that's being laced within supplies of heroin coming into the United States mm. and – it, it maybe it's a whole different episode for another show where we talk about like why is that happening? Is mm. it just to save cost on the manufacturer's side? How does heroin get into the states? Yeah, as well, yeah, and yeah. and and what is the difference between fentanyl and all this mm. stuff? And who would just who would be putting it in there? There's a there's a photo in this article uh, from statnews.com. The headline is "Why Fentanyl is Deadlier Than Heroin" in a single photo, and it's these two inch tall vials. Um, on the left is heroin, and it has about a centimeter of powder in the bottom of it. And then next to it is fentanyl, and it just looks like residue. Like mm-hmm. there's like maybe 10 grains that you mm-hmm. can see. Wow. It looks like the leftovers in like a salt shaker. And that's an equivalent dose? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, terrifying. That's terrifying. So maybe that is a future episode for us today. Uh, we want to thank you for uh, – thank you for taking this – strange journey with us. It's only the beginning of something that has been ongoing for, you know, not just since maybe since the 1990s here in the States, but ongoing for thousands of years in terms of our species struggle with opium. So in short answer for today's question, yes, 
The opium epidemic in the U.S. is at least partially the result of an active and very successful conspiracy on the part of pharmaceutical companies, some of them, not all of them, to twist the law or circumvent it entirely and push these painkillers on innocent patients. Two biggest factors in this are private partnerships with politicians, withholding or suppressing of important information, and... Nowadays, 2018, multiple companies claim they are, in fact, combating the crisis. They or companies like them did play a role in creating. None of these companies to date have acknowledged that they played this role, even when internal memos show that they consciously did. So it's pretty easy to see how critics don't trust these statements. Currently, the attorneys general of 41 different U.S. states inspired by aggressive legislation from Ohio are joining forces to investigate these companies. The ultimate goal of these lawsuits is to force the manufacturers to change their marketing tactics, offer better warnings as to how addictive these things can be. So far, all of these cases have been civil and not criminal. And well, Gosh, we have more of a as a final as a final word, we want to hear from you. What are the consequences for these companies? What should they be? How can societies and grips of these epidemics hope to combat them? The answers have a have a wide range of approach and plausibility, but one thing is for sure, at the rate people are overdosing here at least, in our neck of the global woods, a projected five hundred thousand Americans could die from opioid misuse in the next ten years. If you are one of the millions of Americans struggling within an addiction to opioid drugs, please reach out directly to one of the many free treatment centers in your area. There are numbers you can call. We guarantee you are worth it. And your time is worth it. Uh, The time of your loved ones is worth it as well. We'd also like to hear your story. And we promise we won't share it unless you give us the okay to do so. And that's the end of this classic episode. If you have any thoughts or questions about this episode, you can get into contact with us in a number of different ways. One of the best is to give us a call. Our number is 1-833-STDWYTK. If you don't want to do that, you can send us a good old-fashioned email. We are conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.